This morning, we're going to finish out a little two-part mini-series that we started last week called Change Your Mind. Change Your Mind. If you've got a Bible this morning, would you meet me in Ephesians chapter 4? Ephesians 4. If you weren't here last week, you can listen to the message. You can download it on our website, thebridgechurch.tv. You can get it on iTunes by searching The Bridge Church. But just to give you a quick recap of last week, we kind of laid a foundation of how God wants to do a work, not just in our hearts, but in our minds. Once we invite him to move in, to take up residence inside of us, he wants to go to work at changing us. But he doesn't want to just live there. He wants to start to renovate our lives and most specifically our minds. The most foundational scripture about God working on our minds is found in Romans chapter 12. And it says in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to the ways or the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We have it up there on the screen. And last week what we talked about was the difference between conform and transform. Conform means to be formed with the ways of this world, but transform means to be formed across the ways of this world in a totally different pattern and be formed into the way and the image of God. Think the way that God thinks. And we went on to talk about how once God begins to change us, that word renew means to renovate. That God wants to come in and he wants to do a renovation, just like renovating your home. He wants to do a renovation, a work inside of our mind. But he, he wants us, he needs us to give him access in order to do that work. That's what we talked about. And at the end of that passage of scripture, it says that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And in that phrase, the perfect will of God, it literally means that which is eternally true or correct. That in the temporal time that we have on this earth, that eternal truth would shine through us, the perfect will of God. That's what God wants to do. We also talked a little bit from Isaiah chapter 55, where it says in Isaiah 55, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We need to know when we walk into a relationship with God that now that God has moved into our life, he's taken up residence inside of us, he wants to change the way that we think and he wants the way that we think and the way that we live to reflect the God that lives inside of us. Amen? So with that said, I want to go a little bit further today and I want to look at Ephesians chapter 4. But before we do that, I actually thought of this this morning. And as I was finishing up my, my message last night, I didn't even remember this, and I just remembered this morning, and this was, was such perfect timing. I was at a pastor's conference a couple of months ago, and I was talking to another pastor from the East Coast, and we were just staying in the same hotel, and we were having breakfast one morning, we got to chatting, and he and I were talking, and just talking about the different, or the churches that we come from, and it turns out that he and I have similar positions in our churches, and he was telling me about his church, and I just, you know, asked him to give me a brief history, the background, what his church is like, and as he was describing his church, he said, well, our church is several years old. We kind of had an established culture that over the years has kind of begun to change. And he said, as we looked around at our church, we began to realize that we, didn't, that we weren't growing, that we didn't have new people coming into our church. He said, it was like we were the same crowd of people that kept coming and nobody knew was coming for many, many years. He said, and we looked around and thought, how come people from outside the church aren't coming into the church and finding home in the church? He said, and as we looked and as we searched and we tried to figure out what the issue was, he goes, honestly, we realized that we weren't a very friendly church. And I was like, wow, that's quite an admission, you know. I mean, not just the fact that you recognized it, but then the fact that you were actually able to admit it. Like, we weren't a friendly church. And 
Let me tell you, we're not a perfect church, but hey, we're willing to make changes to be friendly and accepting to people who want to come in here and be a part of this house. But with that said, we were talking, and I asked him, I said, so what did you do? He goes, well, honestly, we just began to start asking and looking at every area of our church and ask the question, why do we do what we do? He said it started with all of our volunteer teams and all the teams that serve in our church, but most specifically on Sundays. And he said, we looked at every single team and every single team leader, and we asked questions about the function of every single team, and we met with those team leaders individually, and we talked about all the things that our teams did. He said, and as we had those meetings and as we had those conversations and those discussions, what we found was that there were so many things that we did as a church that were just tasks that were about task and not about people. We didn't care about inviting people in. We didn't care about being warm to people and accepting of people. We were just there to perform tasks every week. He said, and as we talked about those tasks, we would ask our team leaders, let me ask you a question. That doesn't seem to be a very friendly way or a very good way to welcome people into the church. Why is it that we do that? And he said, time and time again, the answer that we would always get, he said, is a phrase that I have come to hate because that's the way we've always done it. He said, I can't tell you how many meetings I had and how many conversations I had with people in our church when I would say, how come our church isn't friendly and why is it that we do this? And they would say, because that's the way that we've always done it. He said, we have made a rule that you cannot answer a question in our church by saying, that's the way we've always done it. He goes, because clearly the way that we had always done it wasn't working. And that leads me to believe this morning that if we keep doing the same old things, we will continue to get the same old results. When you come into a relationship with God, if you want to see that relationship go to a new level, if you want to begin to step into the destiny and the calling that God has for your life, stop doing the same old thing and step into the new thing that God has for you by changing the way that you think. If we want, if we want what we've never had, we need to be willing to do something that we have never done. And is it possible that for many of us in our relationship with God, we call Jesus our Savior, but we haven't yet given him access to become the Lord of our life, so therefore things don't look a whole lot different than they did before we started that relationship with him? Is it possible? Is it possible? I want to talk to you for a little bit from Ephesians chapter 4 this morning and look at some more words from the Apostle Paul and some of the things that he had to say. He wrote Romans chapter 12. But as we look at Ephesians 4, he goes on a little bit more and talks about this. Look at verse 17 from Ephesians 4. Paul says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Everybody say mind. That you should not walk in futility of mind. Notice he doesn't say in futility of heart, but he says futility of mind. He still wants to point out this idea that God wants to change our minds. That word futility means to be devoid of truth or absent or lacking in truth. I don't want you to live a life where you are devoid or lacking truth in your mind. Now, just real quick, where does truth come from? It's okay, you can say it louder. It comes from the Word of God. God is truth. He's the embodiment of truth, and His Word gives us a lamp and a light for our life so that we will know the truth that we are supposed to follow. In other words, don't walk as the rest of the world walks, having no truth in your mind. Now, a quick question here. Why does Paul say don't walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk? It's important to point this out because the Ephesians, this is a, a non-Jewish church. It was a Gentile church. Now, 
there's a lot to be said about this, and we won't spend too much time here, but, you know, you have the Jewish world, those who grew up with the Old Testament canon, word of God, the words of Moses, the writings of the prophets, who knew right from wrong according to the scripture that had been given to them. But then in the Gentile world, the people that Paul is preaching to, these are people who weren't given the same truths as the Jewish people. They didn't come, they didn't grow up having been given that truth put into their mind and into their heart. So Paul points this out and he says, I don't want you to walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, but I want you to know that now that you're in relationship with Jesus, you need to walk under a different standard of truth that everybody else is not walking in. Now, the reason I wanted to take an extra minute to point this out is because that is an exact parallel of what Paul said in Romans 12, where he said, don't let your mind be formed with the pattern or the flow or the ways of the world, but understand that now that you are in relationship with Jesus, he wants to form your mind across the ways that the world thinks and take on the mind of Christ. That's specifically what he's saying. He's pointing that out for them to know this. And again, what was it that differentiated the Jews and the Gentiles in that day, in Paul's day? It was, well, there's many things that we could point to, but one of the most specific things that we could say is that the Jewish people had grown up with the truth of God's word given to them from the time that they were young. And these new believers, these Gentile believers, didn't. So now they had to learn that there is a higher standard of truth that they need to get working in their minds so that they can walk out a successful life in God. I think another picture that we see here is that this is a picture of what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. Yes, I live in this world. Yes, I live in the United States of America where people are free to choose the path that they want to. But while I live in this world, God is not asking me to think like this world. He wants to transform and transcend the way I think so that I think like him, not like the world around me. This is exact parallel to what he taught in Romans chapter 12. As the people of God, we are supposed to live our lives with the standard of truth that guides our thinking. And because of that, it stands to reason that the world around us should see that we live our lives and think according to a higher standard of truth. Again, that's exactly what he was saying in Romans 12 when he says that we would prove the perfect will of God. We should be living a life that the world around us can see the different standard of truth that we are living by. So at the outset of this message, I want to ask every Christian here today a simple question. Do the people in your world know what you believe? Think about it for a minute. Do the people in your world know what you believe? And if they do or they don't, let me ask it this way. How is it that they know what you believe? You know, as Christians, we're, we're kind of famous, or maybe the better word is infamous, to the world around us for continually spouting out of the mouth the things that we say we believe, but then the world looks at many of our lifestyles and says, well, you say one thing, but you do something else. Can I tell you something? The world doesn't need to hear what we believe as much as they need to see what we believe by the way in which we go about living our lives. That's what faith is. Faith is not an internal belief. It's an external action that's caused by an internal belief. Amen? Is everybody with me? So it's important that each and every one of us understand that and know that going forward. Do people in our world know what we believe? And is it because we continually tell them or is it because they see us walking it out? Now, look at verse 18, Ephesians chapter 4. Paul goes on and he says, having their understanding darkened. He was talking about those Gentiles who are walking in darkness. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the blindness of their 
heart. Now, right here, Paul walks away from the mind for just a moment to talk about the heart. It's important that each and every one of us understand that God can only have access to our mind once he's gotten into our heart. And at salvation, we say yes to Jesus as our Savior. We invite him in to become the Lord of our life, and God moves here. Why? Because the Holy Spirit now lives on the inside of us. The Holy Spirit is here, and we can now give him access to renovate us internally, including, most specifically today, our mind. But we have to know that it starts with our heart. And I love the way Paul puts this. Notice these words. And if you're taking notes, this is important to write this down. Notice that ignorance of the mind always starts with blindness of the heart. Ignorance of the mind always starts with blindness of the heart. You know, there are issues that we see in our world, and most specifically in our country today, things that are plaguing our society today, where we look and we say, man, people are just so ignorant in the way that they see other people. That's because ignorance of mind always starts with the blindness of the heart. When we see inequality, when we see prejudice, when we see racism, that is stuff that starts, it's ignorance of the mind that starts with blindness of the heart. Amen? Everybody, everybody follow me so far? We have to know that the mind will follow what we set into motion in our heart first. Now, look at number nine, verse 19. It says, who being past feeling, the way, what that really means in the translation is, having lost all sense of right and wrong, they have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all cleanness and greediness. But you have not so learned. In other words, that is not the way that you have been taught in Jesus. Verse 21. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. The truth is in Jesus. Here's something you should totally write down and hold on to. That the truth is in Jesus. That the truth is in Jesus. That the truth is in Jesus. Everybody say it. That the truth is in Jesus. The standard under which we are supposed to live our life is the standard of truth that has been established by Jesus. That the truth is in Jesus. Look at verse 22. That you put off. Everybody say put off. That you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. There it is again, parallel with Romans chapter 12. But be renewed in the spirit of your mind. In verse 24, that you put on. Everybody say put on. That you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, there's a contrast again. We looked at a contrast last week between conform and transform. But now it's put off the old man and put on the new man. And there's a description about both of these. First of all, who's the old man that we're supposed to put off? He's the one who was corrupt with deceitful lusts. A lot of times when we see that word lust, we automatically think about like sexual lust or something like that. But in fact, throughout scripture, we see that lust is something that describes any sort of hunger that we would have that would take the place of God in our life. Any sort of carnal desire that we would have that would push God out of our life and invite something else in. That's literally the definition of lust throughout the New Testament scripture. It says to put that off. That's the old man that we're supposed to put off. But then put on the new man created, or excuse me, created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, how many of you, you change your clothes before you leave your house in the morning? Like, how many of you don't change? You just get out of bed, you're like, screw it, I'm wearing these jammies. Like, how many of you, if you showed up for work in the thing that you wore to bed, your boss would be like, hey, why don't you go home and change your clothes, and then we'll come back and, you know, talk about maybe conducting business today. 
Like, there's hardly any of us that that would fly. Maybe you work from home and you have the luxury of just getting to sit at your computer all day without, you know, <laughs> having cleaned up or anything. Good for you. But the rest of us who work in offices and, you know, in the world that we live in with other people where we're interacting with others, like, we got to kind of get up and get ourselves together before we show up for work. We put off one thing and we put on another. Now, in our church here right now, we would have people here that you might be in a suit and tie or you might be in shorts and flip-flops. And per personally, I don't think it's that big of a deal to God. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter where you are. You're welcome to be here in God's house. But when it comes to walking out a relationship with God, God is asking us and requiring us that we would put off the old man and put on the new man. And here's the thing. It is absolutely without question a choice. It's up to you. And every day of our lives, we have the option of which man, the old or the new, we're going to put on and walk out in our daily lives. Does this make sense to everybody? You know, as a pastor, all of our pastoral team, we do weddings and, and memorial services, funerals. This last Friday, I did a graveside memorial service. I did a wedding two weeks ago. I got another wedding coming up in two weeks after that. Actually, two more weddings that are coming up. But every single time that I meet with a, a couple who's looking to get married, one of the most important questions that I always ask, and this might seem kind of silly to some of you, because, you know, there's a lot of plans that go into weddings, right? But one of the most important questions I always ask is, how do you want me to dress? Because, like, Sunday mornings we've made pretty casual, right? Like, I can wear jeans and a button-up and, like, we're good to go. But here's the deal. If I show up to do your wedding and the groomsmen are in tuxes and the bridesmaids are dressed almost as beautifully as the bride is and I show up looking like this, you're going to be a little bit disappointed. When you get your pictures back, you're going to be really disappointed. If you told me that the colors were red and I wore green, you'd be like, bro, this wasn't a Christmas wedding. Like, seriously, why did you wear that? <laughs> the reason I say that to you this morning is because one of the worst feelings in the world is showing up underdressed at a certain occasion. Now, why am I saying this to you? Because I want to tell you something. God is calling each and every one of us when we start our walk with him to put on the new man because throughout the course of our life, there's an occasion that he is calling us to be dressed for that is appropriate for the place that he is calling us to. Now, I'm not talking about the clothing that we put on and that we put off. I'm talking about the new man that God wants to reveal himself through in the world around us. That is who God is asking us to become. You know, I was thinking about this again this morning. Jesus told a parable in the Gospels. He there's this called the, the parable, of, I believe, of the wedding feast. And he talks about how there was a certain man who threw a party and a feast for his son who was going to be married. And he talked about having all these invited guests. And it was a picture of God throwing a party that was, it was invite, an invitation to the Jews, to the nation of Israel, to come and be a part of this great wedding as the son, the bridegroom, would come. And they didn't show up. And so there's all these empty chairs and empty tables at the party. And God tells us, and it says that the man told his servant to go out and find some other people, some new invited guests to come and be a part of this. But then they got there and they weren't dressed for the occasion. Now there's a lot to be said about that story, but I want to tell you something. God is calling us throughout the course of our life to dress appropriately for the calling that's in front of us. And I'm not talking about the, the pants and the shirt and the shoes and the way that you do your hair. I'm talking about every single day of our lives putting on the new man and choosing to cast off the old man who's wrapped up in deceitful lusts. God is wanting to change our minds so that we dress accordingly for the thing he's called us to. 
in the days in which we've been given on this earth, remember we talked about this last week with the perfect will of God, we have a short temporal amount of time and we need to make a decision to focus on things which are eternal in the temporal time that we've been given. It's so important that we understand that. Now, put off the old and put on the new. Now, I want to take you somewhere else. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. If you've got your Bible and you want to turn there, you don't have to turn there if you don't want. We'll have these passages on the screen for you. This is Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. So how is it that we go about changing our mind? If we're going to change our mind, what are the things that we're supposed to think about? What are the things that we're supposed to focus on? I want to go past the word think and I want to talk to you a little bit about meditating. I know meditation is kind of a funny word for some of us. I'm not trying to get weird and spiritual. Sometimes when we talk about meditation, a lot of us think that it means we need to sit down and cross our legs and hold out our hands like this and go, hmm, until we're just flooded with positive thoughts. We see the word meditate, though, all through Scripture. The psalmist talked about meditation, the meditations of my heart and my mind. These are things that we have to understand. Look at Philippians 4 and verse 8. Paul writing again, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report. If there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, then meditate on these things. I want to come back to that word meditate in just a moment. But, you know, this, let's just allow this to serve as a checklist. For those of us who call ourselves Christians, we're followers of Christ. Let's just allow this to be a checklist for a moment of what it is that we meditate on, what we dwell on, what we think about, what our heart and our mind is focused in on. The first thing he says of things that we need to focus on, to meditate on, number one, whatever things are true. That, that, the, the definition of that word is pretty simple. Even when you look at it in the Greek, it means accurate or correct. Loving of truth. I want to ask you a question. How much time do you give to meditating or thinking about things which are questionable in truth. I mean, if you look at the world and the nation that we're living in today, it's almost hard to figure out what's true and what's false these days, right? If you watch TV, if you look at social media, it seems like what's true, what's false. Can I tell you something? It doesn't matter what's happening in the world around us. There's one standard of truth that will always bring us back to the center, and it's the standard of God's word. The first thing that we should meditate on. Second thing, whatever things are noble. Another translation, maybe your translation says this, whatever things are honest. I love that word noble because it's so accurate with the way we usually think. A lot of times when we think noble, we think of someone that is of high stature, of high character. And that word noble in its original meaning, it means of good character, good character, honorable in person or in deed. Would the people in your world say to you that you are noble, that you're honorable in person or in deed? Can I tell you that one of the ways that we develop that in our own lives is obviously by being in God's word? But another way that we develop it is by being around other people who are of good character in person and in deed. Who are you spending your time with? Would you look at your circle of friends and the people that you give most of your time to and say that they are noble? That they're of good character in conduct, in person, and in deed? Could you say that? Because that's what we're supposed to dwell upon. That's what we're supposed to give our time and our focus and our attention to. The next thing, whatever things are pure... That word there, literally, it means sacred or pure from carnality. We know that we have carnal minds. We're born of a sinful nature. Do we turn away from that to focus in on things which are pure and which are sacred? Whatever things are lovely, acceptable, and pleasing. Whatever things are of good report or of good reputation. Man, I love a good report. 
beautiful when people come to you and they have nothing but good things to say, positivity on their lips. Have you ever just been around people that are super negative all the time? Like, I don't want to spend my time around people who are super negative because somehow I get to the end of my day and feel like I had a bad day, even if it wasn't that bad. It's because negativity tends to rub off on each and every one of us the more that we pass it on. I give it to you and you give it to somebody else. And pretty soon negativity has surrounded our camp. I want to be a person of good report. I want people to walk away from me saying it was like, I don't even remember what we talked about, but I really felt positive about our interaction today. Like that's who I want to be. That's who I want you to be because we need that in each other. We need to encourage each other in that way. We need to be, people, we need to be around people who are of good report and not people of negative report. Paul goes on and says, if there is any virtue, that virtue there means moral goodness. Now, again, the morality of God's word and the morality of the world that we live in are two different things. So he's saying, we need to make sure that we are focusing in on those things which are virtuous, which have a morality that is in agreement and in accordance with the standard of God's word. I I'm going to be really honest with you right now and just throw this out there and tell you. You know, growing up, if you grew up like me in church, maybe you heard like a lot of legalistic stuff about you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that and you shouldn't go here. And it was like all the things you shouldn't do instead of the things that you can do or should do. And I've gotten away from that. And over the years, I'm really grateful that I live, you know, in a grace church and there's grace that's given to all of us. But I've had to reanalyze in my own life some very unvirtuous things that I used to let in all the time that had an effect on me. And I'm going to be really straight with you. There's a lot of music that like, and I'm not the guy who's going to stand here and say, you should only listen to Chris. Like, that, that's not me. But there's a lot of music that I used to listen to that I don't. There are certain movies that I'm just not going to watch it because I know what's going to happen when I get to the end of it. I know it's about to bombard me with some stuff that is not in agreement with the virtue of God's word. And if I want to meditate and focus and think on these things and expect to have a good output of what is coming in, I need to make sure that I know what's going in before I let it go in. Whether it's a movie that I watch, conversations that I have, friends that I, it doesn't, TV shows, whatever it could be, things that I look at on the internet. I mean, it's all of that stuff. We have to make sure that the virtues we are searching for are in agreement and alignment with the truth and virtues of God's word. And finally he says, if there is anything praiseworthy, and that word there means commendable. If there is anything praiseworthy, you know, praise is such a distinctive thing. Praise was always intended by God to be the language that set us apart from the world around us. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, the Jewish tribe of Judah. The word Judah literally means praise. God has intended that you and I would be people who continually have praise on our lips and praise in our mouth. And I want to ask you a question today. How much praise comes out of your mouth? Not just to God on a daily basis, but how about to the people around you? You know, I love it when someone for like almost no reason will just come up to me out of the blue and be like, you know, I really appreciate that you did this or this or this. Like, I, they, it's like they just see the best in you. They see the best in who you are. They find the littlest reason to compliment you for something. I want to be those kind of people. I want to be that kind of person. I want to look for the smallest thing inside of each and every one of you that I can compliment and commend. Because if I can bring the best out of you, it's going to ask you and require you to become the best that you can be going forward. How praise full are you in the way that you deal for, with other people? Can people see that you are a child of God because of the praise that is on your lips toward God and toward other people? Man, that's right in line with that whole good report thing. If there is anything praiseworthy or commendable. And then finally he says, meditate on all of these things. Meditate on all of these things. Meditate on all of these things. The King James says, think 
And then many other translations use the word meditate. And I think the reason that it gets translated differently in a lot of these other translations is because, you know, with thinking, you and I, we have thoughts that are like a mile a minute. Man, we're thinking from one thing to the next, from one minute to the next. There are thoughts that enter one ear and go right out the other. And it's like we've moved on to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. But there's something specific about the word meditate. To stop. The word meditate literally means to pour over, to analyze, to search through, and to rest upon. That's what meditate literally means. And I think that what Paul's trying to point out to us here is that he doesn't want these good things, pure things, virtuous things, praiseworthy things, things of good report, just to be things that go in one in one ear and out the other. They go through our head quickly and we move on to the next thing. Instead, he says, no, slow everything else down. Take time to pour over these things, to rest upon these things. Let these things sink in through your mind and into your heart so that it filters into everything else in your life. He, just, he says, don't, don't let it just go from one thought to the next. Instead, stop and rest upon these things. I told you I was at a pastor's conference a couple of months ago. That same conference I was at, the pastor who was the host pastor, he said something really interesting. He said, you know, he goes, when it comes to spending time with God on a daily basis, he said, I, I know that, you know, the psalmist said, early in the morning will I rise to seek after you. And a lot of us have felt so bad because we're not morning people. Like, we're like, I can't get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to, like, read my Bible. I'm going to fall asleep. i got to drink five cups of coffee before I can get to that point or whatever. But he says, you know, I'm not a morning person either. He said, but one of the things that I've learned in my life is that when it comes to what Philippians 4 says about meditating on these things, he goes, I made a new rule for myself that took my relationship with God to a whole new level. And I don't want to say that you have to do this, but this really hit home with me. He said, before I go digital, I always go biblical. And I'm like... What does that mean? And he says, that phone doesn't get turned on until I've spent time with God. He says, I don't look at my computer. I don't turn on the TV. I don't check social media. I don't do any of those things until I have spent time with God in the morning. Now, the more that I sat and thought about that, he goes, look, I'm not saying that all you have to do that. And to be honest, like, that's a hard thing for me to do, just that discipline alone. I mean, if you're like me and you got young kids, like, my son's up at, like, 530 every morning, Okay. Like, I'm dealing with him before I can jump into Scripture at all, right? But what's so important about this that we have to understand is it's not about legalism. It's not saying I have to get up and I have to get my word for the day every single day. I think what he's saying is, is that first and foremost, before I do anything else, I've established a precedent in my life that the truth of God's word outweighs everything else. And before I begin my day, I put the filter in place that I see everything that I'm going to encounter today through the truth of God's word that I've taken in when I started this day. I love that thought. Because, it's, again, it's not about legalism. It's not that we have to do that every single morning. There's some of you that are not morning people. But maybe the best thing you could do is say, I've taken a lot in today. It's been a tough day. But before I go to bed tonight, the last thing I'm going to do is make sure that everything that happened today is filtered through the truth of God's word. Maybe it's the last thing you need to do that's going to get you into the next day successfully. I don't know what it is for you, but man, I love that because it was meditating. I pour over, I scour through, I make sure that my life, everything about me rests upon the truth of God's word. I go biblical before I go digital. I thought that was so cool. And going on at the end of this passage, Paul writes these words. At, at the end of verse 9, he says, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me. Now think about this again. The things that you learned and received and heard and saw in me. In other words, he's talking to these people about the teachings that he's given them. You just didn't just hear me say it, but you saw me live it out. 
That's the way our lives are supposed to be, right? That the people around us, the world around us, wouldn't just hear the words of our mouth, but they would see the actions that reflect what's happening inside of us. The things that you saw in me and heard in me, these do. And then he goes on and says, and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. I think that those words are so important, that the God of peace will be with you. I think they're important for two reasons, and I want to tell you what they are. First of all, you know, we said earlier that the new man, the new man that we put on is a righteous man, righteous and holy from God, created by God in righteousness and holiness. I think it's important that if we, that we understand that if we can start to dwell on and meditate on these things that we've been instructed to meditate on, that the peace of God will begin to flood our lives. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Pastor Gary was saying, you know, God is our righteousness. But a lot of us, we struggle with this idea that God is our righteousness, so therefore we are righteous. We don't see ourselves as righteous. What Paul's saying and encouraging us in here is that if we can meditate on things that are true in alignment with the word of God, then the righteousness of God will begin to also sink into our minds. We'll have peace with God knowing that we are righteous because of Christ. But then the second thing that I want to point out, I think the reason Paul writes these words that the God of peace will be with you is because I think Paul wants to remind us that no matter how, how crazy and chaotic and how much turmoil is in the world around us, if we affix our minds and our thoughts and our lives to those things which are in alignment with the word of God, we'll have peace right here no matter what's going on out here. How many people have noticed that we're living in a pretty crazy world right now? <laughs> it doesn't take long to notice it. It doesn't take long to figure it out and see it. Now, I told you earlier, if you turn on the TV, if you turn on social media, if you read, you know, if you do read a newspaper, it seems like nobody does that anymore. But if you do any of those things, man, this is a crazy, crazy messed up world and even in many cases nation that we live in right now. And I told you last week that I wanted to look at one more passage of scripture from the book of Isaiah. And I want to take a moment and do this, and this is what I want to close with today. But before I do it, I want to give you a little bit of background here. Because, you know, we've talked about how God wants to change our mind, the things that we should meditate and dwell on, the way that we're supposed to let God come in and change our minds. But in closing today, I want to look a little bit more practically about how it is that we go about working this out. How we allow the peace of God to be with us, allow him to change our mind, so that way we can be everything that he's called and destined us to be. I want to talk about this practically in closing today. But in the book of Isaiah, at the beginning of this book, if you see in the first 11 chapters, kind of the theme of the book of Isaiah is that the northern kingdom of Israel, you know, there was Israel and Judah divided into two nations, essentially. And you see the northern kingdom of Israel has been really held captive by the Assyrians. And so you have Judah down here, the southern kingdom, and Isaiah, the prophet, is in Judah. And all the people of that land are fearful that the Assyrians are going to come for them next. Like, what, what are we going to do? The northern kingdom's kind of been captured. They're pretty much in exile. It looks like we're going to be next. And they're in this place where the people have begun to question, like, where is God in the midst of these crazy times that we live in? Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Where's God in these crazy times that we're living in? Where's God in this world in which we're living in? Where, where, where is he? The scripture even talks specifically about how there's a remnant of people who continue to believe God, who continue to trust God, and were obedient to God. But Isaiah begins to address the nations who are worried that they're going to be captured next, that they're going to be put into exile. And 
one of the things that happened is these two nations begin to look at the kings in the surrounding nations, and they begin to look at other political leaders within their nation for the answers to the problems that they had. And Isaiah is the voice of God. He's the prophet of God, and he's trying to tell them that you're in the situation that you're in because you have lost your faith. You've lost your trust, and you've lost your obedience in God. And that's the background of the first half, really, of the book of Isaiah. But I want to read this to you today because, you know, not everything that we see in Scripture is apples to apples with the exact things that we're facing today. But when I look at what was happening in Isaiah chapter 8, I read through this and I was just stunned to see how much it sounded like the world that we live in today. These are the words of Isaiah as God has given to him. It says in Isaiah 8 and verse 11, this is from the New Living, okay? He says, the Lord has given me a strong warning not to think like everyone else does. Not to think like everyone else does. Now, why is he saying that? I think there's a couple reasons, because there were believers out there, and he's warning them, don't let your thinking align with the patterns of the world around you, just like what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 12. But then the other side of it was that Isaiah was called to be a prophet of God. He was God's mouthpiece to a nation. And I think what he wanted to get across here was that God had given him a strict warning that if you want to be everything I've called you to be, then you need to learn to think like me and not the world around you. And I would say to all of us here today that if we want to be everything that God has called us to be, we are going to have to learn to not think like the world around us, but instead take in the word of God, meditate on those truths, and become more like him instead. Verse 12, God said, don't call everything a conspiracy like they do. And don't live in dread of what frightens them. I want to read that to you again. Don't call everything a conspiracy like they do, and don't live in dread of what frightens them. That word conspiracy is literally the way that that word gets translated from the original writings. Now, don't worry, we're not going to get political or anything like that, but I'll tell you what. Even when you look at the crazy things that are happening in the news and are happening in our nation, it doesn't take our leaders but five minutes to jump on social media or on TV and start pointing the finger at everybody else. Everything's a conspiracy where everybody else is out to get me and everybody's pointing the finger in opposite directions. And the political climate of that day wasn't a whole lot different. And Isaiah says, God has called me not to think as everybody else does. And then he said, don't look at everything like it's a conspiracy. Because at the end of the day, the reason why bad things happen in the world in which we live is because there is an enemy. There's a devourer out there who wants to kill, steal, and destroy from you and from me. He is the enemy of our souls. And yet here we are on earth trying to put it within flesh and blood, pointing fingers at each other as if it's all about me and everybody else is out to get me. Isaiah says, no, 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 no. Don't view it as a conspiracy. Understand that there's an enemy in this world. And he goes on and he says, and don't live in dread of what frightens them. Don't live in dread of what frightens them. Can I tell you something? If I didn't have the word of God in my life, I would be absolutely terrified of the world that my kids are coming into right now. And there are some of us, we, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we still are incredibly terrified of the world that we've brought our kids into. You know, God looked at Adam and Eve and he said, be fruitful and multiply, go and subdue the earth. And that's a command, that's something that was given to us that's never been changed. But there's a lot of us that are like, I don't know if I want to bring any more kids into this world because it's all going to hell in a handbasket. As if God is smaller than what's happening in the world around us. Don't live in fear and dread of what frightens the rest of the world. And, and here's the thing that's, that's really sad about it, and I don't want to step on anybody's toes, and I'm just going to 
watch my words really carefully, but there are many of us who call ourselves children of God who it takes us one minute to go on social media and talk about how jacked up the world is and how scared we are, and we start pointing the fingers as well. Don't be fearful of what frightens the world around us. Don't live in dread like they do. We have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound. And how do we get it? We allow God to renovate the way that we think. I know some of you are like, I figured you out politically. Trust me, you didn't. I'll move quickly through this because we need to finish. Verse 13, make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. He is the one you should fear. He is the one who should make you tremble. And it says at the beginning of verse 14, he will keep you safe. Pastor Gary talked about the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies just three weeks ago right here in our church service. Jehovah Shaboam. When we talked about that, the thing that was so interesting about it was he asked the question, he said, if the, if the Lord of hosts is the Lord of heaven's armies, he's the one who fights our battles. And man, we are so quick, even as the church of Jesus Christ, to look to the world around us to fight the battles that we're facing. I want to ask you today, who are you relying on to fight your battles? There's no safety to be found in the world around you. Perhaps when we feel like there's opposition to what we believe and what we stand for as Christians in the world around us, we should stop looking to the world around us to solve those problems and we should turn our attention to the Lord of heaven's armies who is victorious in every battle he goes to fight in. Man, there's a lot of us. We ask politicians and we ask governments and we ask leaders to fight our battles and the Lord of heaven's army sits there and says, we live in a sinful world. If you'll just turn for me, I'll keep you safe. Don't be fearful and dread the things that they dread, but know that the Lord of heaven's armies, the Lord of hosts is here to fight your battles. He's given us a spirit of power and love and of a sound mind. A sound mind. I want to say to everybody here this morning, final thing, you might be here today and you've been in relationship with God for a long time, but maybe your thinking is still reflective of the world that you live in rather than the God that you believe in. Or you might be here today and you're living in absolute fear because you think the same way the world does and you're thinking, man, who has all the answers? It doesn't matter if you've been walking with God a long time or you've never made a decision to follow God before. I want to say to everybody here today, all are welcome in this place. Come as you are. But when you walk into a relationship with God, you can't stay the same. You can't stay the same. Because what he wants to do, he sees you for who you can be, the fullest potential. He's the great designer that has a life and a calling for you, something specific, a destiny for you. And it's up to us to give him access to come in and begin to renovate so that the perfect will of God, that which is eternally true, can be revealed through us. I don't want the world around me to look at me and say, man, his life just reflected that, all the things that he was scared of and all the fears of this world. No. I want the world around me to be able to see the eternal truth of God reflected through my temporal life so that they know him for all of eternity. Amen. I want to ask everybody if you would bow your head this morning. I want to pray two prayers. First, for every single person here who's a believer, or maybe today you're in the process of 
allowing God to move in and take up residence in your life, I want to ask that we would go a step further and begin to meditate, begin to rest upon the things that are eternally true from God's word so that the kingdom of God, the perfect will of God can be reflected in our life and he can go about renovating our lives. Father, I thank you today for every person that's here today who's made a decision to follow you and even those who have yet to make that decision. You have a perfect plan and a perfect purpose, a perfect destiny for all their lives, for every life represented here today. But I pray that we would step into the fullness of that by choosing to give you space and access to every area of our life, including our minds. God, change our minds and change our lives. Change our effectiveness. Let the world around us see the truth of who you are through the way that we live our lives, not just the things that we say we believe. I pray, Father, that as we give you access, that you would come in and make us into the fullest, best people that you have called us to be. That you would change our minds, God, that we would not stop short of giving you lordship, full access and permission in our lives. In Jesus' name. With heads bowed one more time, if you're here today and you've never made a decision to follow Christ, I want to tell you that you have no idea what you're missing out on. You might be here today and feel like you're completely unworthy that God would accept you into his family and give you an eternal destination to spend it with him forever and ever. That's what grace is. God loved you so much that as an extension of grace, he sent Jesus, his perfect son, to take your place and my place on a cross to die the death that we deserve for our sins so that we could have salvation and forgiveness. He says that all we have to do is believe in our heart that he chose to give Jesus to us and us accept that sacrifice and confess Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. We could have salvation personally for ourselves and a relationship with him. If that's you and you've never made that decision before, we're not going to put you on the spot. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to stand up or put your hand up. We're just simply going to give you an opportunity to pray a prayer, to mean it with everything inside of you and confess it with your mouth. Would you join this family of people this morning and pray these words right out, loud and, right out loud and mean it with everything inside of you. Say, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you went to the cross, that you died for me, that you rose again, giving me life and forgiveness, both now and for all of eternity. Today I choose you. I want to follow you. I want to live with you. And I want to learn your ways and become all that you have called me to be. In Jesus' name.